Get ready to rumble. Chilling Show Unleashed on the Seven Thunders Media Network. Former city councilor, husband, father, and community watchdog. Your host, Rob Schilling. Welcome to the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Remember, your direct support makes our show possible, and you can directly support this podcast by visiting shillingshow.com and then clicking on the Patreon banner at the top of the page to make a monthly contribution. We appreciate your support. The Schilling Show Unleashed podcast welcomes Jay Bujashevsky, a professor of government and philosophy at the University of Texas at Austin and author of the new book, How and How Not to Be Happy. And Jay, welcome to the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Thanks. I'm glad to be with you. This, to some people, would be a can of worms, and I love how you handled it in the book, but why write on happiness? That's a difficult subject. Well, it is a difficult subject. One of the reasons it's difficult is that um, people have been burned by trying to be happy in the wrong ways and ending up miserably unhappy, and they don't necessarily want to talk about it. So I'm trying to go through some of the mistakes that we make, as well as uh, some of the things that we can learn about uh, about what to do and make sense of it. I'm trying to be user-friendly. I'm, se- I'm sensitive to the to the alarms that some of my readers might have, but I'm trying to speak frankly to them, too. Let's talk about why people don't want to talk about it. What was the hesitance that that you encountered in speaking with various people? Well, there are various reasons for hesitance. One is that, um, is that uh, as I mentioned, some people are already desperately happy, and you would think that that would motivate people to want to talk about it. Yeah. But uh, sometimes it motivates them in the opposite direction. They say, they say happiness is useless. I can't, you, know, you can't be happy. We should stop thinking about it. Uh, I'm going to stop trying to be happy. Yeah, I'm not going to consider the, the, you know, the path to happiness that is considering the path to happiness. You're assuming that you're going to be happier if you stop thinking about it. Uh, and I, I think we need to think a little bit further. It's true that you shouldn't be obsessed and always be asking yourself every, every second, am I happy yet? Am I happy yet? But we do have to give some uh, commonsensical thought to this. Uh, another reason is that sometimes people don't want to hear some of the specific parts of the answer. They may have been pursuing oh, wealth with all their heart and think that that's the, that's the solution. Very few people will admit to believing that, um, that wealth is the path to happiness, but a lot of people, in fact, do believe that. Or, uh, or they believe that um, power or responsibility is the path to happiness. How many people do you know who will say, oh yeah, I want power, that'll make me happy. But on the other hand, people are always saying, I want more responsibility, I want a leadership position, I want to be in management. You know, of course, you know, th- th- this power is an issue. There is a, there's a grain of truth, and this is another thing that makes it difficult. There's a grain of truth in all the wrong answers. Uh, otherwise, they wouldn't be plausible. So sorting out the grain of truth from the, um, from, the, uh, from, from, from the chaff can be sensitive. It can be a little bit difficult. It can, it can alarm people. Jay, I love that you brought in the Declaration of Independence early in the book and the importance of the pursuit of happiness to the founders. Where did that come from? 
Well, I, I believe that, that uh, Jefferson, who was the one who, uh, who introduced that phrase, probably got the idea, although not the, not the, not the phrase itself, from a French natural law thinker named Berlamachy. The idea that the end of human life is happiness, is flourishing, is fulfillment, has been around in Western philosophy for years and years and years. So Jefferson didn't invent this. Berlamachy didn't invent this. They were just uh, plugging us into a very, very long tradition. You notice that he didn't say we have a right to happiness. He says we have a right to pursue it. And uh, that doesn't mean a right to pursue it by all means. If I think that it would, I'd be happier by, by uh, shooting my neighbor, I can't do that. But we do have certain rights to the things that are necessary for human beings to do in order to, to pursue the virtues and, and perform their duties and seek happiness in, in appropriate ways. It must be very difficult because if you asked a lot of people, you'd get different answers. But how did you settle upon a definition of happiness in the first place? Well, I'm, I, I, I confess that I haven't been original here. There's okay. been, there's been a centuries and centuries of discussion of this going all the way back to Aristotle. Aristotle had said that happiness, he was, he was very, he, he got one thing absolutely spot on, and all the classical thinkers would have agreed with him on this, and that is that happiness is not a feeling. Happiness is not something you're feeling, but something you're doing. It is an activity. Well, what activity? You know, when it comes down to it, he says, well, it's, um, it's, living well and, and, uh, and doing well, and that sounds pretty vague. But without knowing what makes you happy, we can characterize that a little bit better. We can say, if, if you had something that was fleeting here today and gone tomorrow, we don't ordinarily call that happiness. We just call that feeling good today, um, being in a good mood. If something leaves, uh, and leaves something to be desired, if it is incomplete, if it is, if it is uh, shabbily vulnerable, uh, if it can be easily destroyed, at the whim of other people, we wouldn't call this happiness. So uh, we can we can gradually build up an idea of what human flourishing is, what it is for us to thrive, uh, and what it is for us to thrive. Of course, we're rational beings. We we are beings that uh, that have souls that seek meaning, and we're not. We're, what what it is for us to thrive is not the same as what it is for a tomato plant to thrive, or for a uh, or for a dog to thrive. And so we have to we have to think about those things. Do different cultures view happiness differently? I'm not sure if you went there in your research, but it would seem to me that there may be some of that. I didn't go into that in the book, but it is true that different cultures tend to make different assumptions about happiness, just like different people do, or different subcultures within our own culture tend to make assumptions about this in certain strata or, or social classes or occupational groups in the United States. You'll find that people are more interested in, um, some people will say, oh, I'm, I think happiness lies in having meaning. Some people will say, I think happiness lies in responsibility. Some people will say it lies in meaningful work. Um, or it lies in love. It, it, just as people disagree, there are different, em- and just as in the, even in the United States, em- emphases on different possible answers, different candidates for the answer have shifted over time. Um, so you see this kind of variation among cultures, among cultures and among generations. For instance, two generations ago, well, three generations ago, many people might have hesitated to say happiness is the same as pleasure. I'm seeking pleasure. Hedonism is very fashionable today. Um, many of my students would have difficulty imagining that happiness could be anything else than just having a good time. It's, you know, so these kinds of things can vary over the generations, over the cultures, over the occupation groups too. It's interesting when we look back on old photographs and people weren't smiling and they seem to be unhappy. 
Uh, was that a change in just how people portrayed themselves? Did, would they have considered themselves happy with those dour faces and the way they were pictured? I've actually thought about that. I don't discuss it in the book, but it, it, I've wondered about that too. They do look dour. I think that they that they thought that that was a dignified way to look. Um, we grin. Uh, obsessively. And sometimes we even look silly. I wonder whether in 200 years when people have have adopted more uh, serious perhaps styles of dress, more serious styles of demeanor when they're having their portraits taken, whether people will look back at us and think, were they just a bunch of of, uh, of giggly, silly, silly people? But to giggly, silly people like us, they look dour. Yeah, I, 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 think, I, I, I don't think that they were... There were certainly sources of misery in uh, in the lives of some people several centuries ago. There was a lot more disease. There was more destitution than there is today. But I don't think that the uh, that the overall total of human happiness changes a lot from generation to generation. Even though we have less disease today, you notice that people are more hysterical about the possibility of getting a disease. Uh, even though we have greater wealth now, people demand more wealth, and they consider themselves deprived if they don't if they don't have every little every little dollar that they um, that they want so i i think that those people probably did have um, have, have lives roughly as satisfying as most most of us that's just a guess because uh, i can't talk with them and uh, and there's 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 no way to be sure but we can read their correspondence we can read the books that they wrote we can read their own reflections on happiness uh, we can get some ideas about this i don't think that they were miserable and dour all the time does happiness have a physiological benefit? Have we done any research and found that people are better off because they're happy? There has been some research about this. I think that uh, feeling good, not having a lot of stress, does have health benefits. It's not something that I'm a great expert on. I, I wouldn't say that's the reason for seeking happiness, though. It would be a little bit like saying, well, I, I want the biscuits to be sweet so that they will have sugar in them. The, the real way to think about that, of course, is that I will put sugar in them because I want them to be sweet. And in the same way, happiness, properly understood, is not something that we seek for the sake of something else like health. It's something that is sought for its own sake. And we can ask, we can actually turn the question around. Is is health itself an element in happiness? If I'm sick, can I still be happy? If uh, if I am healthy, one of the one of the things that I discuss in the book, there's a there's a point of view. Some people say, if you have health, you have everything. Mm -hmm. uh, it seem they seem to think that you will have a guarantee of happiness. Then there's even a UN website uh, that uh, that makes that claim. That's I think that's mistaken. But um, but but it is harder, of course, to uh, if we are physically suffering to be happy. We're talking with Jay Bujashevsky, professor of government philosophy, University of Texas at Austin. The new book is How and How Not to Be Happy. The Schilling Show Unleashed podcast returns in just a moment. Associated Press award-winning journalist. Rob Schilling. Borderhawk.news is a one-stop shop with the latest news about immigration, nationalism, and globalism. The Borderhawk staff daily curates immigration news stories and in the fashion of the Drudge Report, updates the site with cutting-edge content and original first-class commentary. Borderhawk.news highlights national and international media reports, tweets and nuggets buried in local news blurbs, polls, video clips, and policy research. 
Border Hawk is pro-legal immigration, pro-rule of law, but against an unsecure border as countless Americans have suffered violence at the hands of criminal illegal aliens. And an increasing number of Americans are concerned about how mass migration affects their daily life. Borderhawk.news will remain on the forefront of the immigration issue with a buffet of info to read, evaluate, and share. Bookmark Borderhawk.news. Add them on social media at News on Twitter. Looking out for us, Rob Schraub. The Shilling Show Unleashed podcast continues now. The book is How and How Not to Be Happy. The author is Jay Bujashevsky. So, Jay, let's talk about the polls. I thought this was fascinating. When people were asked the question about being satisfied versus being happy, the results were vastly different, but were they thinking the same thing when they answered the question? I doubt that they were. You know, you, one of the reasons that I make a little bit of use of statistics, not that kind of statistic. They, I, I, I'm not interested in statistics where you ask people, are you happy? What makes you happy? People do know something about happiness, but they don't know how to answer questions like that. And they don't always know what it is that they do know, if you follow me. Uh, if you ask people, are you happy? they may actually fairly small percentages say that they are. If you ask them, are you satisfied with your personal life? Fairly large percentages say that they are. The difference lies in how you ask the question. It may also lie in what people want to admit to interviewers and, and things of that sort. It's not a useful way of finding out if they are happy or, or what they know about it. Uh, I, I think a more useful way is to engage in conversation with them, something like a Socratic conversation. You ask them questions. People may say, I'm happy now, I guess. Uh, and you, you talk with them and you find out that there are some real danger signals here. They may have thought that they were happy, but they're not so happy. Or somebody may say, I think happiness lies in, uh, in pleasure. I think it lies in wealth. You can ask them questions. You can, say, you can say, is wealth something you want for its own sake or is it something that you want for the sake of something else? And they say, well, for the sake of something else. Well, then it isn't happiness, is it? And does it produce that something else that you're interested in? Uh, these are the kinds of conversations that, that philosophers and theologians and thoughtful people and essayists and, uh, have, have been asking for, uh, for centuries. And uh, we've sort of lost the art of that. It's very different than a survey where you just go around with your form and, or, or you go around with a questionnaire and say, fill this out. Are you happy? How happy are you? Um, but I think it's a much more useful approach. I want to go to the topic of wealth, which you just referenced. And of course, uh, people pursue money because they think somehow that is going to make them happy. I find it interesting that many people, for example, who hit the lottery have disastrous lives afterwards. The money didn't do that. But what are the reasons that people Mm -hmm. think that money or wealth will make them happy? Well, as I, as I said before, in every error, and that is an error, there's a grain of truth. It's certainly true that we need some material things. I need to be able to feed my family. I need to have clothing. I need to have a, to have a roof over my head. Um, we, are not, uh, we are not disembodied angels. We are embodied beings, and we have some physical and material needs. Now, there's a difference between saying I need certain material things and saying the more material things that I have um, or the more money to buy material things that I have, the happier I will be. That's where the error comes in. You know, the, you commented on people who, who win the lottery and, and, uh, and end up with disastrous lives. Yeah. One, of the, uh, one of the great thinkers of the past once remarked that good fortune in excess 
or for somebody who isn't prepared for it because of the qualities of character that he has, might better be called bad fortune. This is not a distinction that we teach people, and, uh, and I think that we need to. The element of luck, and you spend some time in the book discussing this, and people sometimes say, I'm lucky, but uh, d- does that fit into happiness? Do people feel lucky and then they get happy because they're lucky, or is that just something that's made up, a made-up construct? I would put it the other way around. I, I, on the one hand, good fortune does count for something. I, uh, we mentioned a minute ago, I do need to be able to put food on the table. I do need to uh, tap a roof over my head. I do need to be able to clothe my children. Now, if, if, if things happen beyond my control so that I'm not able to do that, that is certainly going to impair my happiness. And if you want to call that luck or good fortune, we can say then that, yeah, the moral qualities that, are, that we have to have in order to, to, to be living a good life uh, are not enough all by themselves. We need those moral qualities plus good fortune but good fortune by itself is not going to um, is not going to make you happy in, especially if you don't have those those moral qualities and um, if you think well you can compensate for the lack of the moral qualities by just having more and more good fortune well as uh, that thinker that I quoted a few minutes ago said it's not going to be good fortune for you it's going to be bad fortune yeah I did have a whole chapter in the book about luck because some people think that um, some people after despairing gee happiness didn't bring me uh, wealth didn't bring me happiness power didn't bring me happiness this didn't bring me happiness that didn't bring me happiness they say maybe it all comes down to luck some nations have even had goddesses of luck in their pantheons in their rosters of the gods uh, you know gamblers murmur invocations to Lady Luck, it's this. There's a there's a problem here. You do need some some measure of good fortune. The happiness that we can have in this life is vulnerable, but um, but sheer luck isn't going to get you through. We spend so much time and so much money, and uh, there's so much coverage on the topic of beauty. And I love that you had a chapter in the book on health and beauty. And you had a very interesting comparison as to how men view women's beauty versus how women view their own beauty. I'd like for you to spend at least a a little bit of time telling us about that. I found it fascinating. Yes, it it is curious that um, that now I I'm not a woman and I only I, I rely on my, my my female informants to uh, to learn about this. I think it's another thing and one of those things that you can't tell by surveys because people will sometimes say something to a friend or in a family conversation that they won't admit to a surveyor. But uh, men often have idealistic aspirations for for who they want to marry instead of thinking will this person be a good mate will this person be a good wife they're thinking boy is she hot is she a babe or at the other end if a woman is too attractive they may be afraid and think i will never have a chance with this woman i think that women worry less about about how attractive the man is but they tend to be con- quite concerned about how attractive they are themselves. And one of the fascinating things that I found in uh, talking with people about this, uh, a number of women tell me, I don't, I don't try to make myself look good for men. Uh, some women do that, of course. But I do this for, so I want to look good to other women. We're not talking about something lesbian here. It, part of this is you want other women to consider you attractive to men, but that's not exactly the same thing as wanting to be attractive to men. So my wife will say, well, you know, I, my, I don't think that men are necessarily good, good, good judges of whether I have good taste in clothing. Other women are. <laughs> and uh, male and female 
female attitudes are strikingly different about this. It's uh, difficult for most men, <laughs> including myself, to penetrate female attitudes toward this at all. You know, one of the interesting things is it's not the, the, the obsession with health and beauty is another one of the mistakes or another one of the fallacies about happiness. If I'm only beautiful and healthy, I'm going to be happy. But like all the other mistakes, there's a grain of truth in it. We are social beings. Of course, we want to be pleasing to others. We're not um, hermits by nature. We want to engage in social life. And in fact, it's even a virtue. It's even an aspect of virtue to want to be pleasing and not, not in, for your presence not to be offensive to others. So a certain concern, as long as we don't become obsessive with it about how, about how we look, is not inappropriate. We tend to overdo it. That's the uh, difficulty. Could extraordinary beauty, particularly in the case of a woman, uh, be viewed as a curse toward happiness? In other words, as, as that is fleeting? Oh, yeah. Uh, it, it seems to me that could be a lot of problems. Oh, yeah, I think it can be a lot of problems. One is the reason that you just mentioned. Um, extraordinary physical beauty is fleeting. As we get older, it decays, and it really is unfortunate that there is a double standard here. There are some biological reasons for this, but uh, as men get older, they are sometimes considered more attractive. As women get older, they tend to be considered less attractive. That's really unfortunate. You look, at the, you look in the face of an older woman, and you see sometimes an extraordinary beauty. You see the years of her life. You see the experience. You see the the maturity. I see that anyway. Uh, it was harder for me to see that as a young man. But another reason why um, why this may be a, um, a problem for women is that if they are very beautiful, people tend to assume that they achieved whatever they achieved because of their looks. It may be true that a very attractive woman has an easier time getting in the door, for instance, for a job interview. On the other hand, once she lands the job, people are going to be thinking, she just got the job because of her looks. She just got the, the promotion because of her looks. They, they are thinking that she can't do it. And this is a real weight, a real burden for, uh, for women to have to, to, have to overcome. It's not, it's not fair, but that is how, um, how people often, often perceive it. Some years ago, I was involved in the music industry and coming up as a very young person and playing music and watching friends achieving various levels of fame and then losing it shortly thereafter and then spending the next several decades pursuing, regaining it. This pursuit of fame, this is something that people think will make them happy to be famous, but does that work? No, it doesn't work at all. You know, we've got the, we've got the, uh, it, it's amazing the lengths to which people will go to become famous, even, even uh, silly kinds of fame. I want lots of likes on Facebook or something of that sort. There's the, there's the woman, I have nothing against this woman. It seemed an innocent thing to do. Uh, but I mean, she had herself, she got how many, how many hundreds of thousands of, of, uh, of views, of likes on, uh, on, uh, on YouTube, putting on a, a Chewbacca, the Wookiee mask, and laughing hysterically. People loved it, and they started doing imitations. Other people will do things like um, have themselves, some teenagers had themselves filmed uh, going into the grocery store, into the freezer section, opening up the ice cream, licking it, saying to the camera, I've been tested positive for COVID, closing it and putting it back in the case. Uh, sheer attention. There's the, there's the famous pop star, whose name I will not mention, but who had herself videoed uh, riding naked on a wrecking ball. I can't read lips, but people who read lips say that she was mouthing to the camera, 
pay attention to me. Pay attention to me. Now, the, the craving for attention has not made those lives happier. It has ruined. It has distorted. It has ruined those lives. Now, again, it's not wrong for us to want to be, we, we don't want to be invisible to other people. We are social beings. We need to be visible to them, to recognize them, to be recognized by them in order to form friendships, in order to participate in all the healthy routines of social life. And so that's why it's so easy for us to go wrong about something like fame. You know, it's interesting, and you bring up Mother Teresa in your book, and you think about where she was and where she put herself, and she certainly had some element of fame, if you want to call it that. I mean, people knew who she was. But was she happy putting herself into the most miserable situations in the world? Well, there, is, there, is, uh, there are two sides of this. There are times in Mother Teresa, I think that she was happy serving others. I think that she, she saw herself as serving Christ. Yes. And um, I think she was, in fact, in, in serving starving people, sick people. On the other hand, she did have periods in her life, and this, all the saints talk about this, where uh, God left them without any spiritual, any special support, and they, they felt bereft. And this is, some of the saints have said, this is a kind of a spiritual exercise. God is teaching you to depend only on him and not on your circumstances. And I think that that was the attitude that she took toward it. So she wasn't always feeling good. And there were periods of what, what, what has been called the dark night of the soul. But I think that she was living a good life. I think she was flourishing. I think if you'd asked her, she would have said, and she would have said with understanding, she wouldn't have been making it up. Yes, I am happy. I want to take it to another level there because can you really know what happiness is without a contrast? And you talk in the book about suffering. And so can people just be happy all the time or do they have to have contrasts in their life? Well, I don't think contrast makes you happy, um, but I think that it is true that in this life, you will never have a continuous up with no down. If that's what people mean by, by happiness and you're saying you want it in this life. Now, look, I, I believe that, that it is possible to experience that not in this life, but in the vision of the face of God himself. And I do talk about that in the very end of the book, and I promise my God-phobic readers, my, my, my readers who don't want to discuss anything religious, that I'll put it off until the very last chapters. If they want to, they can read right up to that point and then stop and not get the, the punchline or the solution to the mystery of the novel. But, uh, but in this life as it is today, the greatest happiness that is attainable, we need to be realistic. It can be reasonably called happiness, but it is fragmentary, incomplete, vulnerable. It is not a continuous up with no down. And if we are, ex if we are expecting that, that, that uh, a continuous up with no down, it will make us more unhappy because it will be continuously frustrated. Jay, if people want to get a copy of your book, How and How Not to Be Happier, if they want to follow you online, tell us how they can do that. Well, if they want to get a copy, they can, they can get it the same way that they get any of their books. If they prefer online booksellers like Amazon, they can do that. If they, uh, if they like to go to brick-and-mortar bookstores, any brick-and-mortar bookstore, even if they don't carry the book, they can order the book. It's how and how not to be happy. You asked how they can follow me online. I have a website. It's called The Underground Thomist. That's spelled T-H because it comes from the word Thomas. The under, T-H-O-M-I-S-T, The Underground Thomist, and I blog there. And I've got articles there and links to my books and all kinds of other stuff. 
It's such an excellent book on the topic and people will be better off for reading it. Jay Bujashevsky, thank you so much for joining us today on the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed it. That concludes another edition of the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. Visit us online at shillingshow.com where you can directly support this podcast by clicking on the Patreon banner at the top of the page and making a monthly donation. Your support is essential for the continuation of the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. Until next time.